Welcome to the LP Lounge, presented by Hip Dad Radio. If you are looking to discover new music, appreciate older tunes, or learn more about your favorite bands, this is the place for you. Come on in and take a seat with your host, Reed Rinaldi. Every week, we will peel back the curtains, giving you an intimate look at the lives and creative processes of musicians. Now let's dive into some music. December evening in Chicago, our guest for this episode and hero of the story, retired as frontman from his garage psych band of five years, citing toxicity, depression, and differences in contemporary aesthetic ideology. The new year came and our hero, Wavy, now staring down the barrel of a bittersweet isolation, gave himself till his 30th birthday, a mere six months to totally rebrand and release would accidentally become the greatest lo-fi amateur sex music cassette tape of 2017 to everyone who heard it. True life, this is the story of Bummer Pop Volume 2 and how Adam LP became Wavy ID. Welcome to the show, Wavy. Thanks for having me. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm glad that you can make it. I'm glad we could sort this out. We had a couple road bumps, but we got here. And before we get into talking about music or how you become Wavy ID, I like to start all of my guests off with the same question. And that is, what was the first live show you ever went to? Not that your parents dragged you to, but you bought tickets for and went to. Well, I think I, I saw Blink-182 when I was like or something uh, <laughs> at an amphitheater, something outdoors that I went with my dad, my uncle, and my friend. After that, first concert I bought tickets to was like in high school <laughs> we were all like uh uh you know like heady kids like uh fish heads and dead heads uh were those guys like kind of influential to you getting into making music um I mean as a kid I always really liked music I, I think the jam band scene scene was influential because it was heady stuff it was experimental and it kind of pushed my idea of what music was about and what it could explore i didn't really want music though until i got my first guitar which was on my 18th birthday and at that point i just started exploring or like teaching myself to how to play alongs that I really liked. But I was never thinking about, oh, I want to be in a band. I want to make this stuff. At that point, I just had to recreate the stuff I loved. So when was it that you got interested in making music? How old were you? Um, hmm. In college, I... Uh... <laughs> All right, so you know the, the documentary, the 2005 Brian Jonestown documentary, Dig? I don't know it, no. Uh, have you ever heard the, I think it was 
Brian or David who said about the Velvet Underground. They were like, uh, said like only 10,000 people bought the record. One who did uh, started a band. You ever heard that quote? No, I haven't. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm assuming you're one of those people is, then. No, well, the, sort of. It, it, was, it was because of that documentary uh-huh. in 2005. This, this thing came out and it was about the Brian Jonestown Massacre and the Dandy Warhols and their rivalry and... Uh, as kids, when we saw it, it was like, oh my God, dudes are cool. They've got it all figured out. I want to be these guys, these fucking tolls <laughs> um, <laughs> who are so self-involved and so wrecked on drugs and wore leather and just rocked, man, and said, fuck you to the man. That was, I think, really the, the moment I found the lifestyle amorous and worth pursuing. Uh. <laughs> All right, so we were talking a little bit before we hit record, and we talked about some topics. You sent me some interesting things that you want to bring up, and one <laughs> of the questions, it's a two-parter here. I'm going to start with the easy one. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell me what you think the definition of art is? I should preface this by saying I, uh, I actually went to art school. The whole music thing kind of fell in my lap. I look at music from a perspective of like art instead of actually music. And I'm not a trained musician, by the way. It's important. Everyone knows that. I've been sitting around thinking during the pandemic because I've had a lot of time to think. And I, and I realized that art is, it's not the product itself. It's not, it's not the piece of art or it's not the song, but it's, it's like our relationship to it. Like the art exists between the viewer and the, the piece in a way. And so like the experience is really the value of really what makes a, any piece of art valuable. Do you think that, and I, I guess I, I haven't really been around a lot of artists to be honest, but yeah. I always feel like there's this separation between what the artist intended and how people feel about the piece of right. piece about healing for an artist could be something about trauma for somebody else. And do you feel that even though there's that disconnect there, it shouldn't matter? Or do you feel that if people aren't getting the intended message out of the art, it's a little different? That separation between the artist's intent and, and what's perceived is um, it's sort of inherent to the process. Like you cannot dictate what someone feels by a piece of work you made, just, just like the example you, you gave. Once you put something out into the world, it ceases to be yours. Mm-hmm. And, and you could fight as much as you want to say, no, you don't get it. It's this way, it's that way. But you can't deny um, the audience and uh, you know, what it means to them. And, and I think that's a really important thing to consider when you make work, that while you might make it for yourself and for a, a reason, you are ultimately making something for the world. Um, it's, it's like having a kid and eventually your kid grows up and you want to raise your kid to be, you know, the best, but eventually they go off on their own and the best you can do for them at that point is support them, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I kind of agree there, not that, 
I've never studied art. I'm not really up to date on like the ways people make art and why people make art. But that's always what I believed because when I was in school, I went to this like really competitive high school. It was always kind of this like art was secondary. And if you wanted to get into art, it was about studying it and the meaning and the history of it. And it wasn't really open for interpretation. And I kind of was thrown away from art when I was in high school because of that. And as I got older and I realized that art doesn't have to be exactly what the artist needs it to be. It can be what you want it to be as an observer. It really opened my eyes to all the different things that people were making. I would blame the institution of art or, and of music. I mean, the institution of everything is what confuses why we do it in the first place. I think most artists, musicians, writers, they, they set out to make a piece of work because it's something that matters to them, something they have to do. And what prevents a lot of people from getting to the point where their, their work gets out is the bureaucracy of the institutions they have to go through. Like you have to sign a contract with a label and they're going to exploit you if, if you want to get your work out and make a bit of money off of it. It's like an unfortunate reality of it. And it can really uh, sort of corrupt the young minds of, of people who just want to make good work and participate in, in culture. So I guess the second part to this question is, and I never really contemplated this at all, but what is the artist's obligation to society? So when I was young and picked up my first guitar and taught myself chords and then taught myself to sing and play at the same time and uh, was learning like Beatles songs and stuff, I was so passionate about that that learning experience for myself because I was so moved by the music. It mattered so much to me. And I think that feeling is something that an artist should seek to inspire in other people. And you could call it like creating passion or um, inspiring someone, but really I think it's um, accessing people through like a non-verbal communication. Even though I know music has lyrics and stuff, uh, why is music so much more powerful than most conversations we have? Uh, it, it accesses something, I don't know, like primal within us maybe. And I'm so appreciative of the musicians, the artists, the writers who came before me for creating works that really really made a difference in my life that shaped my perspective and inspired me. And I want to carry on in that tradition. I want to give that to other people too. I try to avoid making anything purely for myself. As an artist, I do need to make work for myself because, you know, I'm driven to do it, but I only want to make work assuming that someone else is going to, um, you know, see it, hear it, read it, whatever. And that hoping that they would take away something that would uh, positively impact their mind, their heart, you know, 
we can make destructive work and we can make selfish work. Uh, it's, it's very easy to be cynical as a creator, but, but I think it's the, the real obligation we have is to create like a goodness and to inspire in your audience, the feeling that they are, that we are kind of in this together or we are not dissimilar all the the image the superficial shit is secondary to like the internal things so a little bit and correct me if i'm wrong because i'm taking your response and my perception of how i interact with music and art is that it kind of gives people an explanation to things they can't articulate. So what I mean by that is when a song connects and vibes with somebody, it's maybe not just the lyrics, but it's the melody and everything that comes together to give somebody almost reassurance of what they think about something or how they feel about something. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I have another analogy for my definition of art and how it's, it's more the experience than the actual piece itself. And I'm, I'm going to have to cite the, the Bible. I, I'm, I'm not religious, but I, I do enjoy looking into this stuff because I think it's, there's some rewarding things to be had. Anyway, anyway. So it's pretty common knowledge that in, in the stories of the Bible, everyone's always trying to talk to God, and they're, but God doesn't talk. And they're like, what the hell? Like, why do we suffer? And people like pray and they get no response. But people are always trying to talk to God and people say things like God's plan, you know, (laughs) Um, but God, God doesn't like speak to us, at least not through words, but I I think the voice of God, if there is one is in like, forgive me if this is a little too uh, (laughs) esoteric, but there's like a, there's a poetry in life that can only be seen or felt or heard but cannot be uh, spoken in language. Uh, so for example, you know that movie American Beauty and, and there's the character who filmed the, the trash bag flying around mm-hmm. and he was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Um, regardless of your opinion on that movie and <laughs> all and that. And Kevin Spacey. Yeah, and, and Kevin Spacey. That's sort of like the point is that they're, we find like the divinity, the meaning of life, all the answers we never get from God in the things that can only be felt like melodic things. And again, I'm not saying this is, this demands that you be religious in any way, but I I think there's real value to like the, the ephemeral moments in in space and and it's like the reason you could call a bag flying around a sidewalk art and appreciate that more than some 10 million dollar painting in a gallery wavy i'd like to ask you a very personal question if that's all right with you uh let's do it yeah <laughs> do you think art gives you purpose um hmm. so i i wouldn't say it's art but i would say I would say that I derive my sense of purpose from how I recognize I impact the world around me. 
Like maybe instead of art, you would use the word expression then? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, we influence every, everything around us. And, and, you know, we're very environmentally conscious now. And, and these are dark times, you know. And I think we're very much trying to be better people the way in which we carry ourselves in the world and what we put out into it, um, especially art has a lot of effect. And, and I think the beauty of art and music is how it can have a positive effect in places that matter so much that we can't really quantify. And I, and I mean like spiritual uh, places or like emotional places or how we view the world around us and the people around us. Like I said, it's really easy to make cynical art and to inspire people to be angry. I, I want to make work that makes people feel less alone and more loving to others and also themselves. I think that's something we really need now. I totally agree with that. And that's coming from someone who I find myself to be more artistic when I'm cynical. When I'm cynical and am down, I feel as if my creativity is blossoming. But in reality, I feel like when I'm not cynical and I'm up, I express myself and pour my heart into things that are more human-on-human interaction. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, a lot of the the Bummer Pop album for me, I, I was really down and, you know, I was like lonely. I just quit my band. I lost a bunch of friends. I didn't have anything happening in my life except for my job. I wasn't dating anyone. But I decided to like take that feeling and like make something good out of it. It was sort of like I was battling that cynicism and that darkness. And I I wanted to prove that I could conquer it, make something good for myself and other people, I suppose. And I think I I am more inspired, like, like you said, uh, when I'm feeling like garbage to make work but i try to take that bad feeling and turn it into something good instead of ruminating on it because i wouldn't want to propagate that feeling i I wouldn't want to put that feeling out into the world to other people Um, it's really easy to and i fuck that up all the time don't get me wrong yeah but I, i think that's that's something i really take seriously and you know, want to pursue as a creative person. I like that a lot. Now, before I get into some more questions about your music and how you became Wavy ID, one more art question. Yeah. Do you think memes are art? Um, hmm. Well, yeah, actually, absolutely. I do. Um, that doesn't mean that all, I think all memes are good. yeah (laughs) Um, I'm kind of critical of meme culture right now however I what I love about memes is that just like music it it creates something that we can all relate to and presents it in I don't know like an easily digestible 
like non-pretentious way. It's like a simplification of a feeling and an idea. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of value to that. So yeah, it's hard. Absolutely. What is it about meme culture that you're critical of right now? Well, the flip side of what I just said is that it's like memes are very simple and it's a dangerous road to reduce big ideas to simple images um, and irony is also a little treacherous because it, it promotes cynicism. But I think the biggest thing is that how quickly we digest them and move on. That's one of my big fears about art and culture right now is our lessened attention spans and memes sort of like play into this but you know, we're like we're scrolling, scrolling through the feed, and like you give three seconds to an image and you move on. When I was young and getting into music, I had all the time in the world to sit and just obsess over all the nuances of things. And I, I think that's getting harder for society now. Mm-hmm. Or we're pushing it in that way. Like what's hot, what's hot this week, and then we move on, you know. I agree. It's an interesting take on memes. Most people are, they're not self-aware enough of that criticism, even though I think that's how everybody interacts with memes. I think you're right. Yeah. I I do like memes. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I can't imagine anybody doesn't like memes. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to get into you leaving the band you were in for five years to become wavy ID. I know that this was kind of a big deal for you, not even through talking to you so far, just from reading your intro, it was not just leaving a band and creating a different feel of music. It seems like it was a different creation of yourself. Talk us about that. You hit the nail on the head right there. Um, the, the name Wavy ID kind of explains exactly that. I, I felt like I was changing and that I was probably going to keep changing. So I wanted a, a name that wouldn't box me into any one identity. The band I was in was sort of like a psychedelic rock garage, Baroque pop band. But I felt like uh, creatively we weren't really getting anywhere members of the band became really concerned about marketing and money. And uh, I never believed there'd be any money in music anyway. And I felt like that was sort of really bringing down my idea or like the reason I would, I was making music in the first place. Also at the time in the scene we were playing in, in Chicago, there were many, 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 garage like 60s garage bands and I felt like there was this total saturation everything was really loud and it didn't really matter what songs we wrote what the lyrics were or if we were doing anything different because it all kind of sounded like a big mess so when I started my own thing I was okay let me let me tell you what I was listening to at the time I was getting really into uh, Conan Moccasin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I got to see Conan played one show in Chicago, I think in 2014 at the Empty Bottle. And there were 20 people there. Wow. 
the band starts playing and he comes out and he's playing his guitar. This is probably like my favorite concert experience ever. Conan gets off the stage while playing his guitar. He walks into the middle of the floor and sits down. And everyone sits down around him. As he does, he, he proceeds to play the most sexual, emotional, powerful solo with everyone at the empty bottle, at the empty bottle, sitting Indian style around him. I had never experienced a concert that was that engaging, that hypnotic. By the, end, by the end of that show, he had girls from the audience like climbing on the stage and undressing and dancing. Like, it was so powerful. I wanted to make music that accessed the place in the audience that like made them feel something like that. So I, I wanted to make quieter music. I wanted to make sensual, seductive music. I wanted to get away from 60s rock and embrace... Um, like R&B and uh, soul, hip hop, but also like the aquatic chorusy tones of Conan. I, I, was, I was obsessed, and I still am obsessed with D'Angelo's voodoo. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a DJ here at Hip Dad Radio that loves D'Angelo. It's like one of his favorite artists. Yeah, I cannot get enough of it. And, and so like these, these were my major inspirations. The first song I actually wrote for that was uh, the last song on, on Bummer Pop, Thank You, which is extremely Conan Moccasin. Uh, mm-hmm. You can kind of tell how, how into it I was. And then I just started making looped beats on a keyboard and trying to create tones and sounds that were as delicate and seductive but nuanced as possible. Playing with um, auto tune, like a, or or just different, different like vocal effects, trying to make stuff that was sexy but also kind of funny, but also showed how like sad I was uh, and how bad I wanted a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, and really, that's yeah, that's where it was, and it's amazing. In that time, I it was the most productive I had ever been musically. I was writing and completing one song a month um, in that six months. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It it happened very fast. Did performing this music help you get a girlfriend? (laughs) Um, No. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to, okay. Well, I'm going to tell you a little story. Mm -hmm. I have seen you live before. This was a very interesting experience for me. Mm-hmm. When I was there, you had, there was a girl who was all the way in the back and they were playing an overlaid video behind you guys on the stage. EO Light Show. Uh, Emily, Emily and uh, uh, Olivia. I, I don't believe they're still doing that, but yeah, they, they did a few shows with us. I, I love their work. And that was really cool. And I remember I was about halfway into the crowd and there were these girls standing next to me and these three girls, which were debating who wanted to fuck who (laughs) after the show. That's sweet. 
I don't know if that manifested it into anything, but just so you know, your music, I have experienced it, does have that effect on women. And I, I've been approached by people who are like, Wavy, thank you so much. I, I fuck to your music all the time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which is wonderful. But I, I really do appreciate that people get turned on, but I've never... I'm, a, I'm still a shy guy, and and I wouldn't use the music to pick up chicks. I'm, you just I'm want people to fuck to it. Yeah, it's it's not about me. It's it's I yeah I want people to fuck. I you know what? I really can appreciate that. Thank you very much. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, are you aware of? There's a band, or I guess a guy out in L.A. called Pink Sock. Have you ever heard his music? No. He also performs similar type of music as you, uh, like the lo-fi amateur sex music. And I think you should give him, I think you should check him out. He makes some good music very much along the lines of what you do. It's a little more explicit and slightly less nuanced, but (laughs) as far as the emotions that it brings up in me, they're both very similar. All right. Yeah. I'll give him a listen. Mm -hmm. I've, I've noticed like, since since I started Wavy uh, in the past several years, this has kind of become a thing. There there is a lot more sexy white boy R and B pop stuff out there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice. One thing that's been on my mind since I heard you, even from the first time, I I went home and a couple of days later I looked up your stuff. I'm curious as to where the fuck is Bummer Pop Volume One. Uh so the band I was in before that I that I quit, Bummer Pop Volume One was a compilation of like unfinished works ah. that we put out on a cassette. So in calling in calling Wavy ID's album Bummer Pop Volume Two, what I was doing is leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for from like where I came from to where I was now. Interesting. That makes a little more sense. There's a couple bands that I listen to that start off with EPs or tape number twos, and I just can't find them anywhere. Slow Pulp is an example of that. I ran into them after a show, and my friend and I told them we'd pay them like $40 for EP volume one. They never got back to us, but I like and enjoy the fact that there's a mystery of there's a whole genesis of an EP out there somewhere for an artist. Yeah, um, I mean, Bummer Pop Volume 1 is out there. It can be found. Just so y'all know. Where would one find it? I'm pretty sure it's on Spotify or Bandcamp or... Okay. You know, I don't know because I, I don't... That other band, like, I, I relinquished all of, my, all of my rights and participation to that stuff. So I, I know it's out there. I just don't know who's controlling it right now. Gotcha. Well... I am actually not a Spotify user. I subscribe to YouTube music just because if you're listening out there, I think you should switch some Spotify to YouTube music. There's way more things that you can discover out there. There's a lot of music that's not on Spotify. I think it's worth yeah. not having the ads on YouTube. Also, I spend at least an hour every day after work just on YouTube to unwind. That helps. Yeah, Spotify is garbage. I hate their algorithm. I hate their business practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, YouTube music has an algorithm adjuster, meaning 
It will take into account what you like and don't like as far as the genre, the artist, who the artist has collaborated with. And then there's like these sliding bars as far as like when you discovered new music and want to discover new music, how far outside the restraints of the genre you've been liking, it will allow the algorithm to go. So if you go like all the way to the right, you could listen to the Beatles. And then as you're discovering music, you could find like a cover band of the Beatles, or you could also find you, or if you want to keep it tight, it's just going to be music from that era. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. We need more control of the algorithms that are being offered to us. As long as you are diligent about liking and disliking the music that comes up, the algorithm is always fresh. That's good to know. I'm going to look into that. Yeah, please do. Just a quiet endorsement here of YouTube music. As far as visuals, I know we talked about uh, that those two girls that were helping you when you played with Paul Cherry. Mm-hmm. Your music videos are also very stimulating, if you kind of get what I'm saying there. Like, they're very interactive in telling the story to the viewer and the listener. I feel like a lot of people... For to make music videos, it's kind of just they're doing things that relate to the song. But your music videos really help tell the story. And I would like you to talk a little bit about the dying art that making music videos is. For the music videos we made, um, the label that put me out, the local one, Field Trip, um, they had a sort of loft space downtown and they wanted to make videos. So We recreated a Facebook event or like free chicken dinner music video shoot. And we shot both of those in the same day. We were able to do that because we had volunteers. We had friends who were willing to do it, who had gear and gave their time. And there was not really money involved. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons video is a dying art is because the amount of money uh, it, it takes yeah. um, to get you know, the, the team, the gear, the direction, and the editing. This is a, a whole art form in itself. And in our pandemic era, with people social distancing, it's especially hard to create that sort of content. Also, there's not really a place for people to just watch music videos, unless you have some executive cable package or something. You know, like MTV doesn't serve its function anymore. Mm-hmm. If you want to watch music videos, you'd have to go to what, like Pitchfork or something. Or YouTube. Or YouTube, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but is there like a, no, a source for new music videos? And is there, no. are people making money off of putting out videos? That's the other thing too. It's, it's a great way to get your stuff out, but it's, it's very costly. And the money comes from... I guess like the, the viewership you gain and then them like buying merch or paying to go to your show. So it's like a means to an end. Like most art isn't in itself profitable. So it's kind of unfortunate. It's one of the things that people do for the, mostly for the passion of making the video, for making the piece of art instead of, uh, or, or just promoting themselves, which is unfortunate because man, I, really really love 
making music videos. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it looks like it. I would like to talk a little bit about the other musicians you work with. I know that the drummer from Mild High Club does some work with you, at least as far as performing, right? Yeah, yeah. I know uh, like you and Paul Cherry, I think, make very similar music. I don't know if you guys ever wrote anything together. I thought I saw that you collaborated on that Java tape that he made, but I'm not sure. So maybe you could just go through and talk about all the musicians you like to work with. So I went to high school with um, Alex, the guy behind the Mild High Club. And I moved from college to Hawaii where I was working at a gallery. That's a long story. You don't have to get into it. But Alex um, called me. He's like, dude, you got to move out here and join my band. And this band is the one that I quit. So there's a long thread of a long sequence of events, but I met Paul through Alex uh, because Paul and Alex were both going to Columbia music school. And then I met Matt through Alex as well. Cause Matt, I don't know if he went to Columbia, but he, you know, became the drummer while I was making the album. Like I said, I'm not like a trained musician. So I called Paul one day and I was like, Hey man, can you help me put some piano on this, this track, the dinner at my place. And he did like six takes and 30 minutes and then had to go. And uh, I cut that stuff up and that makes up a lot of the piano you hear on that track. Matt Roberts, the drummer was drumming for wavy ID for maybe a year and a half when he wasn't on tour with mild high Alex from mild high also collaborated on a, I wish I could fly track and bummer pop. These are just people I've known for a long time and we sort of operate in the same scene or like run in the same circles. We like work together when we can, but it's also why our sound is very similar. I think because mm-hmm. we, we grew with the same inspirations like someone once asked me, uh, why is it that Wavy and Mild High and Paul Cherry all play 12-string guitars? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of the reason. I think we were, you know, like rowing together in competition with each other to like keep like leveling ourselves up. So yeah, there's, there's been a lot of collaboration between us all. And uh, as an artist too, I've made art for Mild High Club their next record I, I have the cover for. I don't know when that's coming out, though. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. We're all friends. We play shows and stuff. That's awesome. When I saw you at Empty, not Empty Bottle, uh, Emporium, mm-hmm. that's where I saw you play with Paul Cherry. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was playing keys for you guys. That makes sense. I knew that you guys all kind of collaborated, but I had no idea that you guys had history going so far back. Yeah, over over a decade, decade and a half, I'd say, somewhere around there. Anybody else that you collaborate with? I mean, that's those are just the guys that I recognize. Just because when I was getting into like the indie pop scene, Mile High Club and Paul Cherry were very influential to me, and so I know what their faces look like. But there's a lot of guys you you play music with in your shows and videos. So do you think there's anybody else we should know about? Well, uh, the bass player. Arturo, the bass player in Wavy ID, has his own project. He just released an album, George Arthur Calendar. 
I'd suggest checking out. George Arthur Callender? Yeah. Arturo Callender uh, is his name. Anyone on Field Trip, the label I'm on. So uh, Paul, of course, but Sun Cop also, Pixel Grip. I really like Field Trip's curation. They assemble a really cool team of local musicians. But lately, I, I haven't really been doing much collaborating, musical collaboration work. I, I feel like everyone's kind of isolated right now. So mm-hmm. I've been out of the loop for a bit. Yeah, well, it's, it's really tough to create music during the pandemic. I just interviewed a band called Stints, who their drummer is in Tijuana. And obviously, he can't come to America right now. Yeah. So they wrote their entire album as a band without the drummer. And then they sent him the music and they're just like, do whatever you want, like with the drums and mix it, give us feedback. And they did everything, the whole collaboration online with him, just sharing files, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I've been seeing uh, a lot of videos of bands who are, you know, like isolated in their own sound booth at their homes, putting stuff out. I think that's pretty hip. Is there music to come in the future from Wavy ID? Uh, oh, yeah. I am working on stuff. I know I keep saying that, and I, I can't promise you a, a deadline or even what it's going to look like. After the album, after my album came out and I did like a year of touring, I was still making a lot of stuff, but I started getting a... I'm not as into performing live as I... Well, let me, let me say it another way. Performing as Wavy and writing the Wavy album were totally different experiences. And one of the reasons I've taken so long and like why I'm on a bit of a hiatus is because I felt like when making music, I started trying to make music that fit the brand Wavy ID. I got very very into Wavy as as like a business. And part of that's because I became a band leader and I had to field all these questions suddenly, and I had to worry about money and assembling practices and booking shows and all these things that weren't a part of just writing the music. And it got kind of overwhelming, and I kind of lost the thread of what it was that made me make music in the first place. I've had a lull for, I'd say, a year. I stepped back, but recently I've been getting back into it. I'm, I'm thinking some of that inspiration is coming back. And a lot of the tracks I've, I abandoned, uh, I'm working on again. So there will be music. I promise. I am excited to hear it. It's, it's going to take time though, because I, I want to deliver the best thing I can for you. I have nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> kind of one last thing I'd like to talk about before I let you go. Cause I know you got to get, you got to get out of here. Yeah, I got a job, man. Yeah. You got a job. And that's what I want to talk about is being a server during the pandemic. I've been a server before. I think I served just about every single winter since I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine my experience serving is anything what it's like serving now. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's like? Man, it is gnarly. I mean, as a server, like, the whole premise of your job is I'm here to serve you, you know, like uh, that's, that's no mystery to anyone, but with the new protocols of um, 
you know, having to wear a mask and do the social distancing, there's a weird psychological twist to it. You know, this is kind of tough to talk about because it's kind of a bummer and I don't want to have to rant like I'm, uh, like I'm in the therapist chair or anything. Well, I can give you, I can give you some pretty specific questions if you'd like, if you want me to help you kind of get on track here. Well, I, I would just say that something I've noticed, something that I'm realizing is that serving in the era of the pandemic has kind of made, made the relationship between people like the hierarchical relationship between people, like really clear. It is, it is a lot more work to serve during the pandemic because you have the additional protocols and there is, there's an air of fear, fear for your life. It's kind of bizarre. A lot of people are really understanding of that and, uh, you know, appreciative and want to help you serve them. And that's great. It's spooky, though, when you get a, a guest who is rude or an asshole who are, who are, who kind of scoffs about the mask thing. I mean, I'm no stranger to having, like, a difficult guest. But in a time where it's like, hey, uh, you know, this is like a life or death thing to be scoffed at really kind of changes the way I look at the the industry. As I was saying about, like, what the obligation of an artist is, you know, to, to make work to, for other people to make them feel better in the world. It kind of hits you a little different when you get a, someone who's not really willing to recognize like the reality of the situation that everybody is sharing in. Yeah. I don't know. This is kind of bleak. We don't have to, we don't have to get into this, honestly. Well, I actually would like to get into it because, and we don't have to get too deep into it, but I really just want to help drive home a message to people who are listening. Yeah. And tell me if you don't agree with this at all, but servers are typically people who serve and then they have something else. They have a passion and serving is just a way to subsidize that. So oh, yeah. That they don't starve to death. And nobody that I know has ever been a server because they've enjoyed catering people like hand and foot. I think if you're going to go out right now during the pandemic and dine at a restaurant, two things are important. You have to be respectful of the server and understand that things just happen slower now. You can't just have like 10 servers in the kitchen waiting for their food, like sliding dishes everywhere, I'm sure. No, not at all. Yeah. And so the protocols to getting the food in the system, the cooks cooking the food and getting it to the table is just going to take longer naturally because at the end of the day, all of this is to keep you, the customer, safe. Right. And so all of this time that it's taking is for you. If you want it to be hurried up, you're going to be less safe. And another thing you need to understand is that I've noticed servers are either getting fewer tables because companies feel as if they can't just fire all of their servers. They need to at least put a little bit of money in people's pockets. Or at the very least, they had a period of time when the pandemic started where they weren't getting any income at all. So if you're out a couple extra bucks 
makes a huge difference. I think if, if you're at a table and you've got a $50 bill with you and somebody else, if you usually tip 10 on that, tip 15. I really think that this isn't a hard thing to do for people to rally behind a group of people who have kind of been left behind during the pandemic as far as relief, safety, and coverage has gone. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, that, that made me realize something that I think maybe should, maybe I should say. Um, I don't have to work at that job. I could quit for my own safety and potentially make more money with unemployment than I do at that job. The reason I still work there is because my position at the restaurant helps the restaurant stay afloat so that everyone else who works there still has a job and still has income. Um, I'm still there despite all of my grievances because I care about that system functioning and the people there. And I think that's something that's kind of lost when you're a guest and you come into a place a restaurant you don't you don't think about um all the moving parts and like what's going on in the minds of everyone there a server wants to give you you know a great experience but likewise we're also looking out for everyone we work with and the business as a whole because we don't want everything to fall to shit i don't think anyone wants everything to fall to shit so let's work together y'all whether I'm the server or you're the server, you know, we're all, we're all serving one big thing. I, I couldn't agree more. So if you're listening, I know this got a little preachy at the end there, but I really think this is something that's important. There's a lot of servers in Chicago, like way more than you think. And just being nice and understanding goes a very long way. It, it really does. And believe me, we do appreciate everyone who comes in who uh, is like, hey, thank you, because it, it really makes a world of difference. All right. Well, it's looking like we have to wrap up here. You got places to be and people to see. Wavy, do you have any parting messages? And can you tell everybody where to find you? Um, I do have one more thing to get in really quick. You might have already gotten an email, but... If you haven't, it's coming soon. I spent the past five and a half years as a plaintiff in a uh, class action lawsuit, the people of Illinois versus Facebook, over a privacy violation where they, they take a picture of your face and they map it and they record it and they sell the data and that is illegal in Illinois. And wouldn't you know it, the, the Senate judge said, yeah, Facebook, what the hell? And they have been ordered to pay out $650 million to an estimated six to 9 million people in Illinois. Get your uh, piece of the pie, everybody. So, so specifically, this is how you know if you qualify. If you had Facebook in Illinois for six months and you have like a picture of yourself tagged, you're entitled to like at least $200. This is a really big deal, y'all. Like get your money. Don't sleep on this. That's all. Uh, Facebook, B-I-P-A, classaction.com. I really want everyone to get paid. Uh, so check that out.
if you want to get in touch with me, uh, hit me up Instagram, wavy ID, or uh, go to my website where you can find some art too, uh, which is wayvivid.com, uh, sort of anagram of wavy ID, wayvivid.com. That's it. Awesome. And all this information is going to be in the show notes, listening audience. Go check out the other episodes of LP Lounge and hipdad.cool for more information about Hip Dad Radio. Wavy, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Had a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in. For more information on today's episode, click the link on your podcast players for our show notes. To stay up to date on everything Hip Dad Radio, follow us on Instagram at Hip Dad Radio. See you next time. Oh, uh-huh.